Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And good evening, and we meet virtually, alas, because we are in lockdown, but we continue to learn Torah, and thanks to the wonders of technology and the Chaste Hashem, we are able to do so. So we start at the very beginning of Parshat Vayetzeh which, as we will soon see, is a continuation of the end of Parshat Toldot. And at the end of Parshat Toldot, we were told, and it's probably worth reviewing, that Yitzchak called Yaakov and in Pasuk Hay of Perak Kafchet. Vayishlach Yitzchak ed Yaakov, Yitzchak sent Yaakov away, Vayelach Padan Arama, and he went to Padan Aram. Uh, and then after Pasuk Hey, we read Vayar Esav ki verach Yitzchak. Esav saw that Yitzchak had blessed Yaakov and Esav decided to go and marry some extra wives. And Rashi shows the continuity there. It's because Esav saw that Yitzchak had been blessed and he was obviously the, the favored child at that moment. So Esav thought he would try and carry some favor by marrying into uh, the family and he married his uh, cousins on Yishmael's side. And then we come to Pasuk Yud, which says, Yaakov mi Bersheva, Charana. Yaakov left Bersheva and he went to Haran. So Rashi says, Yaakov, al banot Halach esav el Yishmael. Because well, interesting enough, Rashi sort of says two words for because, and I did see some discussion on it, but um, I don't think we're going to go into that. Al-Yadeh and Bishvil, because the daughters of Canaan were evil in the eyes of Yitzchak, his father. Halach Esav al-Yishmael, Esav went to Yishmael. That's what we just read in Pasuk Vav to Tet. And therefore, says Rashi, Hifsik ha-inyan, parashato shal Yaakov. The inyan, the matter of Yaakov was interrupted. Uchetiv, and it writes, Vayar Esav ki verach, etc. Esav saw, that's from Pasuk Vav. Umishagamar chazar the inyan harishon. And when it was finished, or the, the parsha of Esav, the mini parsha of Esav, finding an extra wife, when that was concluded, it returned to the previous matter. So what's Rashi saying? Rashi's saying is this Pasuk is a continuation of Pasuk Vav. Actually, there's two ways to see this, Rashi, and I want to present both. The first is you might have lost track of the story, and we were learning about Yaakov, and then we learned about Esav, uh, and now we're back on Yaakov. And Rashi explains that Pasuk Vav, Zion, Chet, and Tet were, as it were, in parentheses. They were a tangent, and now we've come back to the main part of the story. Interestingly, um, Oh, sorry, okay. Um, but there's another point, you can go further. It's not just that we're, we're um, getting back to the story, we are repeating the story. And this really is the problem, because in Pasuk Hay, at the end of Toldot, it said, Vayelech Padana Aram. He went to Padana Aram. Now, we are assuming, and it's legitimate to assume, that Padana Aram is the same as Haran. So, uh, we could perhaps argue that Haran is a place within Padan Aram, which might complicate the matter, but let's work on the basis that Haran is the same as Padan Aram, or to say to go to Padan Aram is the same as to go to Haran, in which case we have already been told that Yaakov went there. In Pasuk Hay, it said he went to Padan Aram, and here it's not just about recapping, it's repeating. Bayela Harana is saying what we already know. So really, that's the question that Rashi's answering. Why are we told something we already know? So when he says, Umisha Gamar, when the story of Esau was completed, Chazar al-Inyan Harisham, it returned to the previous matter. It's not just that it picked up the story of Yaakov, but it did a bit of a flashback. It did a little bit of a flashback to say he went to Haran in order to remind us where we were. Incidentally, in Perak, uh, in Shemot, Perak Vav, Pasuk Kaftet, Rashi says something similar. Um, 
that on the words, uh, the Pasuk says, Hashem, Hashem, Hashem said to Moshe, I am Paro, uh, sorry, I am Hashem, go to Paro. And Rashi senses that there's a problem with that verse because Hashem has already said to Moshe, I am Hashem, go to Paro. Not actually in those exact words, but close enough. So Rashi there in Shemot Vav Perak Kaftet, Pasuk Kaftet says, on the words of Yadavah Hashem, this is the same as was said above when it said, Because there was an interruption, and the interruption that Rashi is referring to there is Perak Vav, the first half of Perak Vav of uh, Shemot, where it gives the Yichus, the family tree of Moshe and Aram and the Shevet Levi. So since there was an interruption to the main narrative of that uh, family tree bit, then Chazar it went back over it to begin again. And Rashi explains that's why there's a, an idea, Hashem speaking to Moshe, saying, I am Hashem, go to Paro, that's said twice. As I said, actually, it's not quite said twice. And when we get to Parsha the era, maybe we'll discuss that. But we see what I'm, the reason I'm bringing this is because Rashi says, that there's a reason that we recapped and repeated after an interruption. And that, to sum up, is what Rush is doing in that first comment, explaining why there's been a tangent and why we're coming back after the tangent and why we're saying something that's already happened. Then Rushi says something else. Vayetse. Lo lichtov Yaakov harana. It only needed to say that Yaakov went to Haran. Um, it doesn't need to say that he left Beersheba. After all, if somebody goes to B, then we know for sure they've gone from A to B. They've gone from where they lived before. And in fact, in Pasuk Zion, it didn't say he left anywhere. In Pasuk Zion, it said, As I was saying before, it said he went to Padan Aram. It didn't need to say then he left Beersheba, because it doesn't need to say he left Beersheba. And so you can either say this, the Rashi is picking up the contrast between Pasuk Yud and Pasuk Zion, or you can say Rashi is picking up the contrast between Pasuk Yud and pretty much everywhere else in the Torah, where a voyage, a journey from A to B is described in the context with the words, he went to B, not he left A and went to B. So why, as Rashi says, Lama hizkir yitziato? Why does it mention his departing? And the answer is, Eila magid shiyatziat hatsadik min hamakom ose roshem. The departure of a tzadik from a place leaves an impression. And we'll see what the impression is in just a moment. But this is the answer to the question. It wasn't just that Yaakov left A in order to go to B, and leaving A is irrelevant, it's insubstantial. But leaving A, in this case, leaving Beersheba, has an effect. It's part of the story. Something happened when Yaakov left Beersheba. And what was that? What is the Roshem? What is the impression that he left? Because at the time when a tzaddik is in the city, So these words, they're pretty interchangeable, I think, but we can translate them as they are, it is its glory, it's its splendor, it's its beauty. But when it's gone, when he's gone from there, the hod, the uh, splendor has, what did I say, of the uh, glory has gone away. The ziv, the splendor has gone away. The hadar of the beauty has gone away. So these three things, and we'll talk in a minute about what, how we can understand them better. These three things are what a tzaddik brings to a place. And when he goes, those three things depart. And therefore, we need to know that uh, because something happened when he left Beersheba, namely those three things departed. And Rashi then brings a parallel to see a similar verse. And you can say the same with the departing of a place 
which is said in relation to Nami and Rut, because we read in Rut, Perak Aleph, Pasuk Zayim, she went, referring to Nami alone, from the place where she was there. And then it says, and her two daughters-in-law were with her, and they went on the way to return to Eretz Yehuda. So Rashi brings that, and we'll talk in a minute about why Rashi brings that example from Ruth, but clearly it's parallel. It makes the point about Yetzia min hamakom, the departing from a place. Now, what is this Hod, Ziv, and Hadar? So I want to share what the Maharal says. Um, to be honest, I think it, it's a little bit, bit of a stretch, but it's actually rather beautiful in, and, and I think rather important in how he understands these three concepts. And he says uh, in a typical Maharal style, the three concepts match up to three things which he tells you a tzaddik brings to a city. And these three things, which I'm about to say, are much more accessible and much more understandable than Hod, Ziv, and Hadar. They are Yirat Shemayim, Chachma, wisdom, and Midot Tovot, good behavior. And these three things are what we'd expect a Tzaddik to bring, because how, what, how does a Tzaddik leave a Roshem on the Hod and the Ziv and the Hadar? A Tzaddik teaches either directly or by example. And what does a Tzaddik teach? So the Maharal beautifully and I think in typical style, he, he's listed the three things that comprise everything that we would want to learn from a tzaddik. Chachma is wisdom. Sorry, let's start with Yirat Shamayim, the fear of heaven, the awareness of God, which leads to everything else. Chachma is wisdom. And Midot Tovot are, is good behavior. It's interesting that he splits Midot Tovot from Chachma. Some might argue that Chachma contains all the ethical norms that we would need, uh, but we won't go into that now. And then he says each one of those three can be matched up, and here's where it's a little bit of a convoluted process, to the three things that are mentioned in the Midrash that Rashi quotes. So Yirat Shamayim, he says, is compared to Hod, and Hod in the sense not of glory, but Hodah, as in praise, acknowledgement. And we know the Pasuk from Eshet Chayel, Isha Yirat Hashem, He Titalal. So Yirat Hashem is something that is praised. So that's Yirat Hashem, or Yirat Shemayim, connects to Hod. Now, Chochma, he says, connects, wisdom connects to Ziv, um, because the Pasuk in Kohelet, Chochmat Ha'adam Ta'ir Panav. The wisdom of a person illuminates their face. Illumination is related to Ziv. As I said, I think it's, a, or the way I've understood it, it's a little bit of a convoluted process, but it's the best that I could see of how to understand these three concepts. And the third, midat tovot, good behavior, matches up to hadar, um, which is also, which is cognate with tiferet, um, beauty, splendor. And we know from Pirkei Avot, Peret Bet, Pasuk Aleph, uh, Mishnah Aleph, um, the things that a person should choose to do, the, 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 the attributes that a person should choose are kol shehi tiferet la'oseha, are things that bring tiferet to those who do it. So by finding a Pasuk and another Pasuk and a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, we've linked um, Yirat Shemayim to praise, which is like Hod. We've linked Chachma to Ta'ir uh, Panav, illuminated face, which is like Ziv. And we've linked Midot Tovot from the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot to Tiferet, which is like Hadar. And that's how the Maharal says the three things that Eitzadik brings in general and Yaakov brought in particular are Yirat Shemayim, Chachma and Midot Tovot. And the reason I, I like this, Russia is not just because I like everything the Maharal, Maharal says, is because I, I'm not really, I can't really understand how a tzaddik brings um, Hod and Ziv and Hadar, but I can understand how a tzaddik brings Yirat Shemayim and Chochma and Midot Tovah. Now, um, what's this thing about Rut and Nami? Why does Rashi feel the need to say that um, this Yitzhiya Hamamakom, you find a similar idea with the Teitse Min Hamakom, that she went out from the place by Nami and Rut. And to make the question a little bit stronger, if you look at Rashi on that Pasuk in Rut, so again, it's Rut Perak Aleph Pasuk Zion, it said, Rashi there says, Ela Magid Tzadik Menamakom Nikeret. The exodus, the departure of a tzaddik from a place, this is referring to Nami, or this is what Rashi says about Nami. The departure of a tzaddik from a place is recognizable, 
and leaves an impression. Pina ziva, pina shivcha, pina hadra shall ear. The ziv, the shevach, praise, and the hadar of the city all depart. Interestingly, it's not quite the same three things, is that the order is different. And instead of hod, he's got shevach, which actually fits nicely with what the Maharal said a little while ago. And then it says, this is Rashi, on route, the chain, the yetze Yaakov mi Beersheba. And similarly, we find the yetze Yaakov mi Beersheba, our pasuk. So some want to say we have an issue here. I mean, every child who plays around with words in a dictionary looks for where a dictionary slips up and is recursive. In other words, word A, it says C word B, and then C word, in word B, it says C word A. And a good dictionary should never do that. I don't know if one ever does, but one always looks for words like that. Well, it would appear that Rashi has done that because when he says um, with Yaakov, ah, look what happens with Rutanami, you look at Rutanami and it says, ah, look what happens with Yaakov. So what's going on? So the first thing is to say, um, uh, some like the Divrei David, that's the Taz say, and I've paraphrased it as no big deal. The Taz says, don't get, don't, don't get upset about this. Don't get bothered by this. He's making a comparison and the comparison works from one way to the other and it works from the other to one. No, nothing more to say. But perhaps, uh, well, that's a good answer and it's not for me to disagree with the Taz, but I, I prefer to say um, that um, what, what these two Rashis are saying, the one on Yaakov and the one on Rut, is to say, neither of them are Davka. In other words, neither of them are unique. The point that Rashi wants to make in both cases is there are parallels. There are places in the Tanakh where we mention the Yetziah of a Tzaddik from a place, the Exodus of a Tzaddik from a place. And by Yaakov, he wants to say, look, there are other times that we mention the Exodus of a Tzaddik, e.g. with Nami. And by Nami, he wants to say, there are other times, it's not unique. But I also saw um, a more sophisticated answer along the style of the Gemara, when the Gemara will often ask, why does a Mishnah need to say two things when you could have learned just one? And the Gemara's style will often be to say, ah, there's a chiddush, there's a novel idea with both cases, because in both cases, you might've thought one and not the other, and then you might've thought the other and not the one. And the Gemara will go on and explain what is unique about both cases. So one can actually do a similar analysis here. You could say that Yaakov, is not leaving permanently. Yaakov plans to return. So you might have thought that when he leaves temporarily, as it happened, it was for a long time, but he didn't know that at the time. But the point is he's leaving in order to come back. You might have thought that the Hod and the Ziv and the Hadar of the place do not diminish because he's just left temporarily. Ah, you can see from Nehemi and Rut who were leaving permanently, that these three things do diminish with the departure of a tzaddik. Um, or the other way around, you can say that Yaakov was leaving his home. He'd been there all his life. So then you might think in his case, the, um, the three things diminish because he's been such a stable part, uh, a staple part of the community, and now he's leaving which is not the case with Nami and Rut, who've only been there, well, Rut's been there all her life, but Nami, who's the actual focus, she's been there temporarily. She's only been there 10 years. She came from Bethlehem. She's going back to Bethlehem. So you might have thought in the case of Nami that there's no diminishing of the Hod and the Hadar and the Ziv when she leaves because she hasn't been there all her life, whereas Yaakov has. So in each case, there's a reason that you need to be taught it in one respect and in the other, because you could argue in both cases, you could argue that it would affect Yaakov and not Nami, or it would affect Nami and not Yaakov, and that's why Rashi needs to point it out in both places. And that concludes the first two Rashi's on um, this Pasuk, but we have one more little bit to go on the words Vayelech Harana. says Rashi, Yatsa lelechet lacharon. He went to go to Haran. What's Rashi doing? Well, it's, I think this is quite an obvious one. The Pasuk says, Vayela Harana. But the very next Pasuk, as we will see, says he stopped on the way. The next Pasuk and the next few Pasukim are things that happened on the way to Haran. So he hadn't got to Haran. So there's a problem with the simple meaning, the, the usual meaning of Vayela Harana, he went to Haran. In fact, we have this, it occurs to me, we have the same dichotomy in, in English. Um, he went to Haran. Does that mean he got there? 
Or does that mean he went on the way to Haran? They could each be expressed by the same term. So Rashi wants to tell you he didn't get to Haran. It doesn't mean that he got to Haran. It cannot mean that he got to Haran. But rather he means he went on the way to Haran. He went out to go to Haran, which, as I say, in English actually could be expressed as he went to Haran, meaning he got on the way to Haran. And Rashi is saying exactly the same in Hebrew, that it means and not dafka, that he reached Haran. I should say at this point that this verse and the next one will be completely reinterpreted by Rashi when he comes to Pasuk Yud Zion. So we've got to wait a few Pesukim. We're not going to get there this week for sure. But he goes back over Pasuk Yud and Yud Aleph and gives a very different interpretation. And including on these words, he revisits with a different view when he gets to Pasuk Yud Zion. But we'll leave that for that occasion. Although when we get there, you'll have to remember what he said here as well. But I'll remind you. Okay, that concludes Pasuk Yud. A lot to say there. Benji. I'm sorry, can I just ask, please? I don't know if you saw anywhere why it mentions um, Be'er Sheva in this Pasuk and not in Pasuk Hay before when it says, um, why didn't it say there maybe is it maybe here because of that parenthesis we said it's resuming the story maybe it's better to kind of give us a I don't know if you saw anything any explanation why okay. didn't mention the answer before. is no I didn't see anything um, but I, I'm guessing that the previous in Pasuk Zion I think I might have said earlier Pasuk Zion I meant Pasuk Zion that's really in the context of keep getting it wrong Yitzchak sending Yaakov away. And Yitzchak sent Yaakov and said, go to Laman's house. So what happened? Yaakov went to Laman's house. That's relevant to the conclusion of the Yitzchak sending Yaakov away narrative. Now we're on a new story, the story of Yaakov and his journey. So the first thing we know about his journey is he leaves Beersheba, and as we've seen, that leaves the Roshan, that leaves an impression. So that would be my answer to your question, but I haven't seen anyone say anything like that. Thank you. Okay, we now come to the next verse, which we'll spend as much time on as we did on the last one. Bayifka Bamakom. He, well, we're going to have um, to work on the interpretation of Bayifka. Um, I'll, I'll just as a holding word translation use, he alighted, because I've seen that in some places, I think that's a nice word, but we will review that in a few moments. Bayifka Bamakom. He alighted on the place. Yolen Sham, and he spent the night there, Kiva Hashemesh, because the sun had set. And he took from the stones of the place, and he put them. Now, I'm going to talk about the mem of Meroshotav, so I'll really leave it untranslated at the moment. That's something to do with his head. And he slept or he lay down in that place. Wow, where do we start with this verse? This treasure trove of riches of Parshanut. So we'll start with the first Rashi, The Pasuk doesn't mention which place, Now I'll just mention very quickly that Ba, Bet with a Patach under, is a contraction of Bet with a hay and a Patach under the hay being the definite article, but in Hebrew, a hay, and when the, we have a bet uh, prefix and a hay um, article, they are merged together and we get a bet with a patach under. So the point is, ba makom means in the place. The patach, the vowel under the bet is translated as the. So ba makom in the place. Hanizkar makom acher which has been mentioned in some other place. The word maher is, um, is somebody's, uh, ah, uh, somebody's just asked, is it possible to download the sources? Um, uh, I will see what I can do. If you just give me a moment. Where were we in the Pasha? Some, Robert has asked, where are we in the Pasha? We're at the beginning of Vayetze. Uh, it's not this week's Pasha. We're going through Bereshit from beginning forwards. And we're at the beginning of Parshat Vayetze, and we're in Perak Kafchet Pasuk Yud Aleph. Um, if you can tell me in the chat if that helps you. Bereshit Perak Kafchet Pasuk Yud Aleph. 
Okay, so Rashi was saying, it's the place that's been mentioned in another place. The word makom here is purely coincidental, but it's using it twice. So bamakom is the word in the Pasuk, bamakom just means another place. Now, this is Rashi, as he often does, identifying definite articles. And according to Rashi, he is consistent in this matter. If something or a person or a place is introduced with a definite article, it means something we already are familiar with. It's something that's been mentioned already. And says Rashi, who ha hamaria? It is ha hamaria, the temple mount. We don't have to give it another name as well for other people. We can just call it ha hamaria. Because in the story of the Akeda, as he approached the uh, Mount Hahamaria, the Pasuk says he saw Hamakom Merachok, the place from afar. Uh, I haven't checked, but I think it's quite possible it's the only um, location in the whole of the Torah up to this point that has been called Hamakom. So when the Torah now says Bamakom, he alighted in that place. It's the same place that's been identified before. It is Hahamaria. So um, Rashi there, I think we can say is a fairly straightforward Rashi. Um, I'm probably making more heavy weather than necessary. Bamakom means in the place. If it's the, it must be a place that's been identified before. Hamakom is referred to Hahamaria. So wow, Yaakov is spending the night not in some irrelevant stopping station, but Hahamaria itself, the place of the Akeda. Um, the place of great, great significance and great, great Kedusha. And we'll come back to that. And also, the, uh, when we get to Posit Yud Zion, we will review this whole Ha-Hamaria bit and how he got there. So we'll have to wait for that. Now, the word Vayifka, as I say, is problematic. So I've translated it as alighted at the place because that works. But what does Paga usually mean? Well, Paga can mean like a, a blemish, like a wound, like a plague. Or more commonly, it can mean a meeting. Pekisha um, is another word for meeting, but pekia can also mean meeting, as in he met the place. But let's see what Rashi says. Uvayivka, sorry, vayivka, kamo ufaga b'yiricho, ufaga b'dabashet, sorry, dabashet. Two places in Yehoshua, two separate places, but they're very similar, and Rashi sort of puts them together. Paga b'yiricho and paga b'davashet. And why does Rashi bring those two examples? Because there you have paga referring to a place. And Rashi's problem is paga does not normally refer to a place. It's normally the meeting of two individuals, two things which move towards each other. Remember that because it's coming, something's relevant coming soon. And so how can you say that you can meet some innominate object or rather an animal place which doesn't do any moving ah you can because we see in Yeshua two examples of where you can paga with a place and then it says our rabbis explain this as a lotion of tefillah Hashem says do not tifga me in other words, do not daven to me, do not entreat me. So we see that there is another meaning of paga, nothing to do with meeting, or actually maybe it is to do with meeting, sorry, but it's not the simple meaning of meeting. It's not the simple meaning of alighting, it's praying. So the Yifgabamakom means Yaakov, and this is, he introduces it by saying Rabotenu Darshu, it's explicit, sorry, Rabotenu Pirshu, but it's definitely not Pshat, it's a Midrash, but it needs to be brought to um, solve the problem of why the word pigi'ah is used, because there are other words that could have been used for reaching a place or coming to a place. Why pigi'ah? Because Chazal said pigi'ah also has the connotation of praying, and that's what Yaakov was doing. We learn that Yaakov instituted ma'ariv, or arvit, as our Sephardi brethren call it. We know, well, we probably know, but the Gemara in Brachas in Kaf Vav Amadet, I think, says that there are two sources for Shachrit Mincha One is the Korbanot, the morning Tamid 
corresponds to Shacharit. The afternoon Tamid corresponds to Mincha. The leftovers that were burnt on the Mizbeach overnight corresponds to Marim. And then the Gemara says, alternatively, or maybe it's not so alternatively, maybe the two fit together, uh, Avraham instituted Shacharit, uh, Yitzchak instituted Mincha, we learned at the end of Chayisara, and Yaakov instituted Mariv. And I don't know, when we met this concept before, I don't know if I gave you this little drasha, but it's worth pointing out that perhaps you can say that Avraham's life was pretty good from beginning to end. The sun was shining brightly in the sky throughout all of his life. Yitzchak's life began to darken towards the end. He grew blind, he couldn't see, he was confused between his sons. Mincha is the afternoon prayer when it starts to get a bit darker. And Yaakov's life was pretty tough from beginning to end. He had trouble with Esav, he had trouble with Lavan, he had trouble with Yosef. His life was fitting for the night time, for when it's dark. And he instituted Mariv. Um, and then it says, back to the Rashi, V'shina hakatuv, v'lokatav v'yitpalel. And the Pasuk changed the word and didn't write Vayit Palel. In other words, at this point, Rashi said that we have the word Pigi'ah. And Chazal said the word Pigi'ah tells us that he was davening. So in which case, the question is, why doesn't it say he was davening? If that's really what Chazal is saying is the meaning, then why don't we stick with Vayit Palel? So it says, Rashi, Shinah Vayit Palel, lelamedcha shakaftsa lo ha'aretz to teach you that the earth was contracted for him, as is explained in the chapter of the Gemara, in the chapter in Chulin, which is called Gid Hanasha, which we will visit when we get to the oft-promised Pasuk Yud Zion. So, the, the Pegiyah really means two things. It means meeting, and it means praying. And by the end of this Rashi, we're hopefully comfortable to say there's an element of both. It means praying because he prayed. It means meeting because he met the place. Um, because, and you can say that he meet, the, the, you can use the word begiyah in relation to a place because we see that in Yahushua, but the word begiyah is used in relation to a place twice. But still, there's a problem with the word pikiyah, meaning meter, come to a place. Even though we can say that you know, we find two examples in Yeshua, it's still, the question remains, why don't we use the more logical word of he came to the place or he met the mifgash, he met the place. I'm not quite sure what alternatives there could have been, but pikiyah is not a normal one. We can find a parallel, but it's still not normal. So that's the third part of Rashi. So the first one is it means he got to the place like in Yeshua. The second point is it also means to fill up because he instituted Marif. And the third part of the Rashi, if you like, sort of synthesizes the two. But why Pegia? Because Pegia actually normally means, as I said earlier, two things coming together. So that tells you that Kafza lo haderech, the earth contracted for him. Now, what does that mean? It means, simple idea, and we say this also by Eliezer when he went to Haran, that he covered a big distance in a short time. But it also, how does, he, how does it work? How do you cover a big distance in a short time? If you're heading for place A, which is uh, some distance away, so you could go very, very fast. But also what happens when Kaftzalo Haderech is that place A comes towards you. As you're going to it, it miraculously moves and comes towards you. So Kvitzat Haderech is not just uh, the, the way is contracted that you can go super fast. Kafitza Taderech is your destination comes to you, which means just as Yaakov was going to Hahamaria, Hahamaria was coming to him. That's Pagia. Pagia is, as I said earlier, deliberately, when two things move towards each other. So because it used the word Pagia, says Rashi, that teaches you, Shakavza lo ha'aretz, but the earth contracted, i.e., Hahamaria came towards uh, Yaakov just as he was going towards it. And we will explore that more in Rashi's comment in Possibly of Zion. Can I ask a question? Yes, please. Um, so does that imply that there was tefillah and kvitzat haderech in Yehoshua as, as well? Or is it more of a davarachir point for this specific case? Um, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a davarachir because I think the two purushim actually fit together. They're not contradictory. They're mutually okay. compatible. 
Um, but in answer to the first part of your question, uh, yes, or, or rather no. Um, it, the word pegia can mean meat. In this case, Chazal tell us it meant prayer as well. And by the way, it, it's worth pointing out, um, uh, the three examples of Shachrit Mincha Mariv, if you look in the Gemara there, and I think we've, we've come across them um, in the two, in the Avram incident and the Yitzhak incident. Um, well, let's think of Yitzhak because I can remember it. Um, so the Gemara says, Lasuach there means to Davam. And it brings a parallel, finds a Pasuk in Tehillim, where Siach clearly means prayer. But Siach doesn't always mean prayer, it can mean conversation. Um, so this is the way of Pashanot, to say that a word in place X is compared to another word in place Y, and the word in place X has a particular meaning, does not mean that every occurrence of that word has that meaning. That's how Pashanot works. Um, now, we need the Mephoshim, and we need the Chazal to tell us when we say it has this secondary meaning and when it doesn't. But to say it has a secondary meaning here does not mean it has a secondary meaning everywhere it's used. Thank you. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yes, as I say, I mean, there's, I, I, I'm, we, we, we need guidance in when to apply these rules, because clearly there is an inconsistency, but it turns out there are rules that explain it as well. So, no, in Yoshua, when they arrived in, where was it? Um, Yericho and Dabashet, that doesn't mean they were praying there. Okay. Um, uh, so why do we need all this stuff? So the one thing Rashi has done is explain the word pigi'ah, and why we use this unusual word, because it has the connotation of tefillah. Um, why does Rashi need to say that, that Yaakov tikein tefillah arbit? Or, or even stronger, Rashi says, this teaches us that he instituted mariv. And that's because assuming pigi'ah means tefillah, and Rashi explains it as a, a, a secondary meaning. So you can read the Pasuk. Well, there's two meanings, there's two aspects to the Pasuk. He arrived at the place and he davened at the place. Why do we need to be told he davened at the place? Yaakov is Yaakov Avinu. He probably davened all the time. He did lots and lots of davening. Of course he davened. Ah, it's telling you that he instituted to fill up Ma'ariv. By telling you that he davened, by going out of its way to use a word that also means that he davened, it's telling you something significant about his tefillah, that he was instituting the prayer of Ma'ariv. Um, uh, it's also worth pointing out that there's a, a way of understanding Rashi uh, slightly more profoundly than I presented. I'm not saying this is uh, necessarily, I agree with this, but what is meant by hamakom in many connotations, as particularly as in hamakom, yenachem etchem betoch Yerushalayim, what do we mean when we say hamakom? We mean what we say in English, the omnipresent. Hamakom, the place, refers to Hashem, who is in every place. So maybe there's a sort of hidden uh, allusion in Rashi when it says, Hashem, uh, sorry, he prayed not in the place, but he prayed to the omnipresent, i.e. to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, let's move on because the story is not finished because the Pasuk says, because the sun literally had come, which means the sun had set. So Rashi's got something interesting to say. Everything Rashi says is interesting. I shouldn't say that, but this is particularly um, uh, thought-provoking on the words Kiva Hashemesh. Says Rashi, Haya lo lichtov, it should have written, Vayavo Hashemesh vayalen sham. The sun set and he stayed the night there. But it doesn't say that. It says, Kiva Hashemesh, now, before we go on to Rashi, before we go on to Rashi's answer, let's understand Rashi's question. Now, that can be read in two ways. Uh, and again, we have a problem with the Vav, or a question with the Vav. As I have many, many times, that little letter Vav has so many possible meanings that it requires a lot of parshanot. It can mean and. The sun set, and he stayed the night there. Two events linked by the conjunction and, um, and, uh, and that's all there is to it. Or it can mean that second vav means therefore. The sun set, therefore he spent the night there. Because we have seen that, we've seen many times, in fact, we saw it um, 
Um, so I won't get into that, but we, we've seen that event A and event B, the end or the verb doesn't mean and, it means because of event B. That is a legitimate use of the verb. So it could mean, uh, the, the alternative reading that Rashi suggests is, I'm sorry, the other way around, I'm sorry. Hashemesh is the cause, Vayel and Sham is the result. So because the sun had set, he stayed the night there. But what we have in our Pasuk is something much stronger. Kivo Hashemesh, sorry, Vayel and Sham, Kivo Hashemesh. It's put the other way around. He stayed the night there because the sun had set. Our Pasuk explicitly and incontrovertibly gives the reason for spending the night there because the sun had set. So Rashi says it would have made more sense to tell it chronologically, um, uh, namely, Vayavo Hashemesh, the sun set, and Sham, and then he stayed the night there. Or possibly you could read that, Vayavo Hashemesh, and Sham, as establishing a link because the sun had set, he spent the night there. But what our Pasuk does is very much says the Vah Hashemesh is the reason for spending the night there, very explicitly. The key is a very strong indicator of causation. The setting of the sun is the reason why Now, that creates its own problem, because why else would anyone spend the night where they are on their travels? You have to go back to the pre-electric light era. What did people do when it got dark? Answer, went to bed. That's what people did when it got dark. In your own home, you might have a candle burning if you can carry on reading, but that's about it. But it's, it's worth remembering, just in, in terms of social history, that until the invention of um, gas lights, followed by electric lights, darkness meant nothing happened. And in the case of Yaakov, he's traveling on a journey. It's going to take him several days. He's going to stop from time to time overnight. When is he going to stop? What's going to trigger his pitching tent, pitching camp, rather? Answer, when the sun goes down. That's obvious. So why do we need to be told, why does the Pasuk need to put it in this form that is telling you explicitly what you would already know, that because the sun went down, he spent the night there. So, says Rashi, because the sun had set, Mashma, this tells you, but the sun set for him suddenly, not in its correct time, in order that he should stay there. In other words, the sun setting is not, doesn't, we don't need to be told that the sun setting is a reason for him to spend the night there. As I said a moment ago, it's obvious. That's why people spend nights because the sun set. But the Pasuk is telling us there's something much more significant about this particular setting of the sun, which caused him to spend the night there, which would not have happened otherwise. And that is the sunset suddenly, not in its correct time. The, um, the Maharal says that what Rashi is saying is Vayelin Sham Kivo Hashemesh, that Yaakov understood that he should stay the night there, but Hashem was telling him to stay the night there because of the pitom, the sudden nature of the sun setting. So Vayelin Sham was like a message to Yaakov, you've got to stay the night there. Now, of course, hopefully this is beginning to fit together because Hashem wants him to stop while he's passing through where? Through Ha Hamaria, because Hashem wants him to go to sleep and have the dream, which he's about to have, Dafka on Ha Hamaria. So Hashem, it's not enough that he visits Ha Hamaria. Hashem wants him to stop there, so he makes the sun set prematurely. The sun should have set, I don't know, an hour later, but it set then at that time so that he would stay the night there. And that is Vayelin Sham Ki Va Hashemesh. And it's not just the normal setting of the sun, because as I say, that would be no big deal. It's the special setting of the sun, setting specially early. Now, this raises an interesting question, which is discussed by the Roshonim and the Achronim. Yaakov arrived there, the sun sets, he davens, he davens Ma'ariv, but he shouldn't really be davening Ma'ariv. 
Because if the sun has set prematurely, he really should be davening mincha. Because really, in, in, in true reality, it's still the afternoon. What do we learn from this? So I just want to share a couple of things that Tosfot learns from this, that it's okay to daven Mariv before sunset. Because in effect, that's what Yaakov did. He davened Mariv before what should have been the sunset. He probably had a luach, or he probably had the... Um, the Mizrahi matters. He was probably using this, and he saw, ah, sun is going to set at um, six five thirty six. I've got plenty of time to finish Mincha. Then the sun set, and he hadn't davened yet, so he davened, but it wasn't yet five thirty six. So it should be Mincha, not Mariv. So Tosfot says we learn from this that you can daven Mariv early, um, as many shuls do, and many people do. Um, I don't want to get into the issue of whether you can do it on your own or not. Um, some say you can't, some say you can, but you, there is such a thing as Mariv before sunset, and there's certainly such a thing as Mariv before it gets dark. And says Tosos, in one opinion, this is learned from the fact that Yaakov, who instituted Mariv, was doubling Mariv before what should have been the time for sunset, and we can do the same. Uh, just lahalacha, um, it is permitted to double Mariv any time from Plag Hamincha, which is one and a quarter seasonal hours before sunset. For a uh, point of reference, today that was 4.33 and sunset was 5.38. Um, Mizrahi Shul, for instance, throughout the summer, davens Mariv uh, after Plaga Mincha, but before sunset, and that's absolutely fine. And says Tosfos, we learned that from that the Yaakov davened Mariv before the time for the sun to set. There's something else. Mariv is intrinsically different from Shacharit and Mincha. There are things which we do at Mariv that we do, sorry, the things we do at Shacharit and Mincha that we don't do at Mariv. And the most obvious one is we don't repeat the Amida at Mariv. There's no Chazaras Hashatz. One can also add that we don't say Tachnan at Mariv. We say it at Shacharit and we say it at Mincha, uh, but we don't say it at Mariv. So Mariv, in, in some respects, is the poor relation of Shacharit and Mincha. Why should this be so? Well, remember I said in the Gemara, there were two answers to where do we get the three daily services from? If we get them from the sacrifices, we can understand because there was a morning sacrifice, there was an afternoon sacrifice, there was no evening sacrifice. In the evening, they burnt on the Mizbeach the leftovers from the day. So Mariv, which corresponds to the burning of the leftovers, is not quite of the same status as Shacharit and Mincha. But if we say Abraham instituted Shacharit, Yitzchak instituted Mincha, Yaakov instituted Mariv, why should Mariv be slightly less of lesser status than the other two? And the answer is here, because when Yaakov instituted Mariv, he wasn't really doubling Mariv, he was doubling Mincha for reasons we've explained. So the Mariv that he instituted didn't have quite the same status as Shacharit and Mincha. Um, I was just about to say something else about, oh yes, um, the other thing is the Gemara in Bracha says an amazing thing about Mariv, it might seem amazing, because our custom is not to, to uh, follow in this way, but to fill out Arvit Rashut, there is discussion whether Mariv is compulsory or, or voluntary, and the conclusion of the Gemara is that it is voluntary. To fill out Arvit is an optional thing to do, you have to do Shachrit, you have to do Mincha, Mariv is optional. Don't get too excited or too concerned that we've lost Mariv, which is a beautiful way to end the day, um, because Klal Yisrael have taken it upon themselves as an obligation, just like Shacharit and Mincha. So today it has the same obligatory nature as Shacharit and Mincha, but some of the differences that we see between Shacharit and Mincha on the one hand and Mariv on the other are reflected in this idea that it's only optional one time it was only optional, which also, according to the Pnei Yoshua, it is, refers back to this fact that Mar Yaakov, when he instituted Mariv, was actually davening Mincha after the sun had set, because the sun had set prematurely. Okay, let's go on to the next Rashi, uh, which might take us more than the 10 minutes we've got left, but let's see. So the Pasuk says, Vayikach me'avne hamakom. He took from the stones of the place, the Yasem Merashotav, and he put them, and I said something to do with his head. Says Rashi, the Yasem Merashotav, Asa'an Kamin Marzev Saviv Lerosho. He put, he made like a literally a gutter around his head 
שירא מפני חיות רעות, because he feared because of wild animals. So he protected himself with this marzev. This marzev means a, a sort of ring of stones around his head. Now, how does a ring of stones protect him from wild animals? I'm not entirely sure. It might be some sort of slightly mystical, supernatural, miraculous way. Or perhaps there is a simpler idea that if an animal comes towards his head, they're going to have to get over the stone first of all, and he will have time to wake up and be aware and take defensive action. He only needs the stones around his head because he, um, if an animal comes for any other part of his body, he, it's not quite so critical as if the animal comes for his head. The head needs more protection and needs an early warning system more than other parts of his body. Uh, I've never slept out, to be honest, in the open, I think maybe once in a tent, and I'm not quite sure how this ring of stones around his head really defends him, but that, that's, what, that's what I offer. Now, what is clear is if he puts the stones around his head, there is a multitude of stones. There's lots of stones around his head, not just one. So then Rashi says, um, The stones began to argue with each other. This one said that Sadiq will rest his head on me. And this other stone said, He'll rest his head on me. Immediately Hashem made them into one stone. And this is what it says. And by the way, this is now the, the, the next word is going to tell you what Rashi's question is. Because in Pasuk uh, Yudchet, when Yaakov wakes up in the morning after his dream, he took the stone which he had put around his head. So in the morning, it's one stone. But when he goes to sleep, it's stones around his head, which must be a plurality of stones. And so Rashi, how do you get from lots of stones to one stone? That's why Rashi brings the story of the stones arguing with each other and wanting an Hashem uniting them into one. There's a lot to say. The first thing I want to say is, is of a sort of technical nature. The Ibn Ezra says, why do you need to say that many stones became one? Why do you need to say that? Because What does that mean, literally? He took from the stones of the place. Says the Ibn Ezra, yes, he took from the stones, but from the stones, he took one stone. He took one stone from the place. And that became the one stone that was under his head. And so he took one stone and one stone in the morning. You don't need to have a story about stones arguing with each other. Rashi is, does not accept that. Rashi insists that it's a plurality of stones at the beginning and one stone at the end. Now, why does Rashi insist that it's a plurality of stones? Because of the word meraashatav. What does meraashatav mean? What's the mem? The rosh is something to do with his head. Rashatav is his head. What's the mem? So, if you look in Shmuel Aleph, Kafvav Yud Aleph, we have the incident where um, David was able to kill Shaul, but decided not to. He found Shaul asleep in the tent with things around him. And the Pasuk says, when Shmuel, when Shmuel uh, sorry, when David did not kill Shaul as he could have done, but he says to his uh, assistant, Take the spear, which is and the flask of water, and let's go. Now, would a spear be under his head or around his head? And better still, although you don't have to read the spear and the the pitcher of water, both because the word comes between the two. But if you do read it as both two items were Merashotav, they can't both be under his head, but they can be around his head. These are the things that were around his head. And therefore, Merashotav um, uh, um, doesn't mean under his head, it means around his head. Um, I can give you another example. 
back to Rut, whom we saw earlier. In the third parak of Megillat Rut, we have the remarkable and mysterious encounter between Rut and Boaz in the middle of the night. Um, and Rut appears in Boaz's sleeping chamber, and Boaz is a bit uh, taken aback. And Rut spends the night there, but she says that, that, that she sleeps, v'tishkach meiragalotav ad haboke. She slept meiragalotav. Now that does not mean under his feet. Uh, it, from the context of a story, she certainly didn't sleep under his feet. She slept by his feet. Um, I don't know if you can say around his sleeve as if she curled around, but she slept by his feet. So even if I realize that my proof from Shmuel Aleph is not totally um, very strong, that it means around his head, it certainly means by his head rather than under his head. I think it does mean around his head. The spear and the water were around his head, and she slept, I'm going to say, around his feet. And therefore, Yaakov took stones and put them around his head, because one stone doesn't go around his head. It's only a plurality of stones that goes around his head. And that is why Rashi does not go in the way of the Ibn Ezra, even though that would be easier. It's very easy to say the he took from the stones of the place, meaning he took one stone, but Rashi doesn't accept that. When it says it means around his head. That means a plurality of stones. And it also means Rashi has to explain why he put them around his head. Put them around his head to protect him from wild animals. That's the explanation of why he put them. One more thing to say is this cute idea which every child knows about the stones arguing with each other because it sounds so strange. Um, I'm not going to say whether we take it literally or not, that is not our point, but the idea of the stones uniting as one is the essence of what Yaakov Avinu was all about. And I can make this stronger by saying the Midrash, incidentally Rashi doesn't, but the Midrash gives us the number of stones that he took. Guess what? Twelve. The Midrash says he took 12 stones, and the Midrash says they melded into one. It doesn't take uh, too much passionate to realize we're talking about Yaakov having 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, which become one people. And Yaakov, over and over again, we will see this theme. We see this theme in Rashi, I think I, I remember counting about four times. Um, Russia, Yaakov's concern is that all of his children follow in his way, that he doesn't have a Yishmael and an Esau like his grandfather and father did, but all of his children are kosher, sadikim, and when there's a chashash but they're not, this is a great problem for Yaakov. More than that, that they should all live, unlike Yosef, which he thought was dead, uh, they should all live and produce the 12 tribes, and the 12 tribes should be the one. And over and over again, we see this theme that Yaakov is the ultimate, ultimate uniter. He unites the elements of Abraham and Yitzchak, and he unites the 12 tribes that come from him into one nation. So this Midrash of the stones, which the Midrash says is 12 stones, uniting to become one, is not coincidental. As Yaakov sets off on his journey, and what will he come back with? He will come back with the 12 tribes. He will come back with having turned himself, one individual, into a father of a family, of a nation. He is going off on this journey to build the nation and to coalesce all the disparate forces that he will come, that will come from him into one. And therefore, the story of the 12 stones becoming one stone as he sets off on this journey is very, very appropriate. We will stop there. And I will say... Are there any questions? Rav, can I ask a question quickly, if yes. I may, please? Um, I think when you said that Rashi makes a point that it was around his head, not under his head, but how does that reconcile with the stones argument they wanted to be under Yaakov's head if they weren't physically under his head? Okay, good question, good question. So one version um, of the Midrash says that he put, well, no, it doesn't say it in the Midrash, but we have to assume that one was under his head and the rest were around his head. Um, uh, and therefore, they all sort of, the ones around his head sort of argue with the one under his head, and they all said they want to be under his head. Um, Rashi, interestingly, doesn't say that. He doesn't spell that out, because I don't think that's actually what Rashi thinks is the simplest meaning. Because when he laid down, the stones were made Rosh Tav, and when he got up, he took the stone, um, uh, he took the stone 
which he had put around his head. So it sounds to me like Rashi understands, I mean, to the extent that we can take the Midrash literally, and, and we don't really have to, but it's part of how Rashi explains the, the Pasuk, is the stones around his head became one stone. Now, one stone can't be around his head. So one stone ends up under his head. So two things happened. I think this is how Rashi understands the Midrash. Number one, the stones wanted to be under his head. None of them were to start with. And number two, they all wanted to be under his head. So they all became under his head. So they moved from Merashotav to somewhere which wasn't Merashotav, which was literally under his head. So um, that's how I understand the answer, the Rashi's answer to your question. And, and it's significant that he doesn't start by saying he put one under his head and the rest around. He put them all around and therefore they all had to move into under. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. We'll meet next week, maybe online, maybe in person. Let's see. But either way, we will meet and we will carry on learning. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.